Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature artist Lillianne Milgrom. Our conversation will be a departure from other interviews in that we will be discussing a book she wrote titled Laura Jean. After the Orsay Museum in Paris graced her with the opportunity to copy Gustave Courbet's painting titled L'Origine de Mode, The Origin of the World. Lillianne spent nearly a decade researching the secret life of the world's most erotic masterpiece, a painting that disappeared for 150 years. Let's begin with me reading the opening paragraph. Paris, winter 2011, the Orsay Museum. It stopped me dead in my tracks. Granted, I was in Paris, but nonetheless, this wasn't something you'd expect to see in one of the most celebrated museums in the world. Prominently displayed on its own dedicated wall and hanging at eye level was a realistically rendered, X-rated, peep-show perspective of a woman's exposed genitals, not a fig leaf in sight. The parted thighs drew my eye towards the riotous pubic bush just left of dead center. The vulva was split asunder by a palette knife slash of scarlet. A shadowed ravine divided the buttocks into two creamy rounded orbs, and only a single breast, crested by a blush-colored nipple, peeked out from beneath ruffled sheets. No face, no legs, no arms, just lady pits. With that, welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast featuring artist Lillianne Milgram. Thank you and enjoy. Lillianne, it's wonderful to have you join me today. Welcome. Thank you, Phyllis. <laughs> so I introduced listeners to this episode by reading them the first chapter in your book titled L'Origine. I'm sure their minds are wandering in different directions. Some mm-hmm. curious, some appalled, some intrigued. I was totally captivated by your work, by your book, by the entire scenario. Um, so instead of talking about who you are as an artist, I just want to dive into your brain, the journey you went on from the moment you walked into the museum and you saw this unique and beautiful work by Gustave Courbet. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to you. Well, merci beaucoup, Phyllis. I'm glad that you read that first paragraph because that leaves no doubt in anyone's mind what we're talking about. And and the sort of uh, painting that you don't often encounter in museums. 
So that is how I felt. And I think you can tell by that first paragraph that I just saw immediate beauty in it. I was, you know, initially shocked because I wasn't expecting to see that. And very quickly it turned to infatuation. But as an artist, I, I just want to make a point about Gustave Courbet's painting technique. And he's known for painting flesh and skin tones. His skin tones are absolutely luminescent. They're, they're just beautiful. And I just kept coming back to it, not only from, as an artist appreciating the art, but it was just so unapologetic, so bold, <laughs> so, so in your face, you know, you really. And so on that day, uh, I don't want to give everything away, but what happened is on that day, I was uh, in Paris for a few months on an extended artist residency. I didn't really know what I was going to do there. I knew I wanted to approach something to do with sexuality and aging. And I went to the museum for inspiration, saw this painting, you know, stared at it for I don't know how long and then kept on going around the museum at the Orsay, which is one of my favorite museums in the world. And uh, I just kept thinking about it. It just uh, had an afterlife. It just wouldn't leave me. And then as I was leaving the museum, I just made a beeline for the, for the information desk and asked how I could possibly become a copyist. You know, those people that uh, set up their easels in front of these famous paintings and uh, paint the painting. I've never, ever wanted to do that before. I've never done it. I've never really paid that much attention to copyists. And it's not my thing. It's totally out of my comfort zone. And to make a long story short, I begged to become the copyist, not knowing what I was getting into. And uh, I became the copyist. And for six weeks, I, uh, you know, stood in public and painted this very, very intimate portrait of a woman's uh, sex. And it was the experience of a lifetime. It really was. Um, I went through a whole transformation of feelings from the beginning of my copist my copyist stint to the time I finished and put my last brush stroke on that painting. Amazing. And while you were sitting in the museum painting, how did visitors react? Oh, well, that was, that was something that I really hadn't thought through. I mean, I knew it was, it had made a huge impression on me, but I really didn't know all that much about the painting. Not enough to know that it's, you know, one of the museum's prized possessions. Uh, and millions of people come through the Orsay. Many of them want to see that particular painting. So there was this constant stream of people, which I hadn't anticipated. And uh, so I realized pretty early on that I wasn't just copying this painting. I was interacting with the public. And it was a, a form of performance art, I think, because people were looking at me, looking at the painting. And it's, it was a very uncomfortable at times, empowering at times, amusing. People would come in and say all sorts of things. Um, you know, there was all sorts of anecdotes that I tell in the book because it, it was amazing to me. Like some people just loved it, women especially, the older women, I'd say, surprised me, especially the European women. They just loved it. They thought it was beautiful. They thought of motherhood. They loved it. The younger women surprised me also because 
they were absolutely repulsed by mm -hmm. the cubic push. And, you know, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, okay, without your monthly wax, I mean, <laughs> where, where would you be? <laughs> so that sort of surprised me. And then also there were these young guys who came in and I spoke to them and they said, no, they did not find it erotic because they needed a face to go along with it. They thought that the eyes and the mouth were the erotic uh, trigger points for them. Whereas um, older men definitely found it still very erotic. You know, so there was a lot of uh, different things. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that um, a guard told me, because it's only been in the possession of the Orsay Museum since the 1990s. And it was painted in 1866. So the book is really about where was the painting all this time. But after it was shown at the Orsay in the 1990s, right at the beginning, a security guard at the museum told me that there was this, this French guy that used to come in in a raincoat every day as soon as the museum would open and just sort of park himself in front of his painting uh -oh. with his nose like right up to it. And he uh -oh. every day. And eventually the, the museum asked him to leave and he's like apparently became a persona non grata at the museum. So, you know, people do get obsessed with this painting in, in, in good ways and um, I won't say bad ways, but, you know, different ways. <laughs> and, and tell me, so do you have a sense of why the male gaze is different than the female gaze? Oh, that's such a loaded question. It is. <laughs> and, you know, okay, so let's just start. I think that what, what, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is I wanted to humanize the painting. I, I, I think people rush to judgment when they see this painting and they think it's, you know, pornographic and, and, and provocative and all that. But I don't think that that was the actual motivation of Gustave Courbet in 1866. And we have to put it in context. The painting was painted as a commission, a private commission for an Ottoman diplomat, uh, Khalil Bey. So it was never meant for millions of people to, to ogle at. Let's, let's start right there. And it was kept hidden all this time. But it was definitely painted for the male gaze. And when you, but that, again, you put that into context in the 1860s, okay? You're not going to paint something like that. It, it would just have been too shocking for women to see it. It was not for women's eyes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, every um, collector that it went from hand to hand after that time, were all men, except for the very last woman, Sylvia Bataille. Uh, and it was meant for the male gaze. So now, here I was looking at it through a very feminine gaze. And I saw, I think, a different thing. I think women see different things when they see that. I saw beauty. I saw empowerment. I saw creation. And I saw not so much um, any eroticism, but I just felt like an identification with it, which I think that the male gaze could not possibly identify with this painting as, as a woman does. I mean, what's your impression of the male versus female gaze? As far as women are concerned, I think some may feel that if they appreciate the work, they can't claim that because society makes them feel that good girls don't 
like that type of work or good point yeah you know we're we're supposed to hide ourselves we've been brainwashed over the years yes. um, as a means of control so it seems as if the older women with all the you know sexual revolution and everything are much more open-minded in many ways mm-hmm. and i find that some younger women not all lean more towards being judged by a society or men or in general and so they turn their nose up to it right that's you know there's a lot to be said in that because i still i still think back about my my embarrassment that first day when i you know turned up to the painting rolling my easel behind me and stood in front of it and set up my little mini studio there on a stool <laughs> and it was i mean my my palms were sweating I was absolutely shaking. I couldn't meet anyone's eye. And I'm not I am not a prudish person. I I just was overcome by embarrassment at that time. And that's what it, that's what being there for 6 weeks did to me. There was I am no longer embarrassed. I feel like I said totally empowered. I identified with the painting and I have a personal sort of protective pride in that painting. I just absolutely love it. Yeah. yeah. I think I would have been obsessed also. So you were the very first copyist. That's right. And since then, let's talk about the various contemporary artists who were inspired by this work. Oh, you know, that's what another thing that is so special about this painting. It is still so incredibly relevant, almost 150 years after it was painted. and relevant not only in that it um you know is a launching point for discussion and debate about the female body the naked female body control over the over the, a woman's body it's still so relevant in that way but so many contemporary painters and artists of all sorts who have seen this painting have riffed on it in their own way and I have sent you as you know I have a whole file that I keep discovering artists I mean it's always like and people are now sending me images that artists have done because they know that I'm interested in this topic so there's been so many artists um actually I'm really sorry I don't have my list in front of me but I can describe certain ones like there's a Trockel uh, I think is the name of the um a German painter uh, she's a conceptual artist and she had this uh, she was in the new museum in new york that's where i saw the piece for the first time she had a, a sort of a medium sized uh, replica of l'origine du monde the painting the origin of the world and instead of the pubic bush she had this large hairy sort of t- tarantula <laughs> and it, it was really shocking to see that it was you know pretty pretty awful and there's so much to unravel in that imagery of what she wanted to say yes um then there's a um an israeli uh, contemporary artist a uh, video artist uh, dana gilerman i think i sent you that too she did a, another sort of shocking piece but very feminist uh, inclined i would say she has a video in which there's an image of uh, l'origine du monde the origin of the world by gustave courbet and as you're watching this 2 minute video you start seeing a trickle of menstrual blood you know mm. 
account. It, it's, you know, maybe she was sort of going one feminist step beyond what Gustave Courbet was doing because he was paying homage to this and it was still rather uh, on a pedestal, okay? Maybe she's trying to show us, you know, go further. This is this is reality because he considered himself a realist, Gustave Courbet. Well, I think she went one huge step further <laughs> in realism. And Micheline Thomas also. Absolutely. I saw her work, and I think it was in the Brooklyn Museum, and she did a black version of L'Origine du Monde with some sequins in there, which is her style. And that was also, you know, she had appropriated it for, 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 for herself and identified with it in her own way. So this painting is really incredible, and it spurs a lot of um, debate and very negative attitudes. People think it's loathsome and it's being banned from Facebook and it's gone to court several times. People want to show the image. It's And social media giants uh, still have a problem with it, even though they lost in the French courts. Yeah, I, I have to be careful how I post it. <laughs> so let's share with listeners uh, the journey, the 10 years of research that you did. Well, I can assure you that from that paragraph you read at the beginning, I had no idea that I was going to be immersed in this painting for the next decade. It just would not have crossed my mind. So not only did I spend that six weeks of my residency in Paris painting this painting, but when I got home, I just was still so intrigued by it that I started looking more deeply into its history. And I also went and bought the 800-page uh, compendium of Gustave Courbet's translated letters. Mm. And the minute I started reading his letters, I said, I am totally enamored with this guy. I have to mm -hmm. read all his letters. And I became intrigued, just intrigued by the artist himself and by the painting. And I started reading more and more. I, I, fortunately, I can read in French because most of the research and history and books and biographies written about this painting in Bat Colbert are in French. And that was one of my motivations that I wanted English-speaking readers to be able to know about this incredible history. So I started reading and more and more, and I realized, oh my goodness, if I thought the painting was, was riveting, it's <laughs> history is even more unbelievable. <laughs> Couldn't make that stuff up. So I just had to write this. It's a story that must be told. And it took me 10 good years. And I'm very, very proud of myself that I could stop at a certain point and say, okay, I, ha I just have to write now. So let's talk about him a little bit. In terms of his choices and the title of the work, I mean, do you feel that he has or had respect for women? I mean, the title, you know, Origin of the World, I mean, that's making a strong statement. It's, it's a compliment. It is absolutely a compliment, but unfortunately there's no direct, unequivocal proof that he came up with the title. So there's a lot of um, debate again, even about the title, uh, but it goes back a long way, pretty, pretty early on, almost uh, like a year or two after it was painted, people started referring to it secretly by that name. But 
we don't know exactly who penned that name. So it's not sure that it was him. But what I did, uh, let's just go back to what sort of person he was for a moment, and that's why I think a lot of the feminist um, art critique uh, about this painting takes that into account, and they, and so they, I believe, take him the wrong way. He was extremely uh, arrogant, volatile, passionate, provocative, sexy, chauvinistic, um, but a true groundbreaker and a, and a rule breaker. So he wanted to do something. His his religion and his entire raison d'être, so to speak, was realism. Like you can speak about realism and different forms, different um, schools of art, okay? But to, to Gustave Courbet, realism was the way he lived. He refused to paint anything that he could not see with his own eyes. That was for him the way he lived. He hated hypocrisy. He hated anyone telling him what to do. And he went ahead and painted what he saw, which was not of the time. That is not how painters painted at his at the time that he was painting. So he was a realist. And I believe that the way that this painting is painted with such sensitivity and beauty, I do believe that he was making a statement as a homage to, to, to women. He did love women. And um, no one had ever painted the female uh, sexual organs in such a way. I mean, think about it. You've gone through museums and they're awash with naked bodies of women and they usually their genitals are covered up, right, with a fig leaf, a hand or, or you know, a fabric or crossed legs or whatever it may be. And he just painted this this way, saying, no, this is the way a woman looks. And I think he did it with love. And in the book, that was a scene that was very hard for me to get into his head. Like, how, what happened at that moment that he painted that? And what I found through all my research was about the time that he painted that, he also had painted a series of paintings that showed a deep, dark cave uh, outside of Ornans, where he was born, where the source of the River Lou comes from. The River Lou passed by his window of his childhood home. And he was fascinated by this dark cave where, this, where the source of the river came from. And so other people, as well as I, think that there was a deep connection with the source of things, creation and the source and, and, and the actual now going back to the very beginnings. And I think that that did have an influence on when he painted this painting. And I do create a scene in my book about that moment. I enjoy the book very much. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about the work's journey to Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Museum. Yes. So as I mentioned, the painting was painted in 1866. And yet... For most of its life, it was kept hidden from view by collectors and seen by so few people that it was actually thought to be missing or, or damaged or nobody really knew where it was because it was so secretly hidden. And the last um, collectors were the famous psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, 
people may know him for his Laconian psychology, uh, he bought the painting in Paris in the 1950s. He and his wife, Sylvia Bataille, who was quite a name in French theater at the time and early French movies. They kept it hidden behind another panel all this time and only showed it to a few people. So um, what happened is that the curator of the Brooklyn Museum in the 1980s was the famous late Linda Nochlin. She was a Courbet scholar and she was obsessed with Courbet, I'd say, uh, perhaps even more than me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she was preparing a huge retrospective. I think it's called, it was called Courbet Reconsidered at the Brooklyn Museum. And she got wind of the fact that people were, there was a rumor that Sylvia Bataille actually had the original. And so she, she pestered her apparently. She went to Paris a few times. And she was able to get, for the first time, she was able to get the original shown in public. But it was, you know, hush-hush, under the radar. Sylvia Bataille refused to have her name linked to it. And when it came back to her, she continued to say she never had it, you know, that she continued to refuse to acknowledge it was in her possession. So it came to the Brooklyn Museum in that way and didn't cause as much of a stir as I think it, it may have if it was shown today, because um, it's causing even more of a stir even in France. So I think, uh, you know, social norms are sort of going backwards a little bit. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have had an opportunity to see it, although I, I know I will. Why do you feel she did not want people to associate her with the work? Well, this is all conjecture, but I've done so much research. Um, I even spoke to somebody who actually spoke to her just before she died. He, he was doing his own research, an American, and actually got um, to see her. And she was a very, very private person despite her public um, career when she was younger. She was very uh, private. So she, uh, I think, the way that I have read her comments about when her husband did used to shock people in his in his bureau by showing them, he, he would slide out this false uh, front that was painted by André Masson and say, and he would just like, he was a psychologist, psychoanalyst, okay? So imagine he had this painting hidden behind a sort of a landscape and he would bring his very few friends that he wanted to show this painting to into his uh, office and he would, he would just like pull aside this, this cover and just watch and watch their faces as they would sort of go from shock to what is this? <laughs> he just enjoyed that. I bet. And what I read is that Sylvia Bataille, that annoyed her. She did not want this painting to sort of be like, a, you know, the red light district almost. She, mm-hmm. she really felt differently about this painting. And I think it was because, you know, she was a woman. Mm-hmm. And all, as I said before, a man is not going to feel the same way and the same sort of identification and the same protective um, feelings that we women might for this painting. That's not to say that there's a lot of women who, who absolutely hate this painting and think it's exploitative, etc. 
and they're very averse to it. But um, in my opinion, Sylvia Bataille, she thought that the world was not ready for this painting. Well, if I owned it, it would be in my bedroom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this interview has been fascinating. I very much enjoyed the book. And I'm sure listeners are curious because we've commented about different aspects of your journey. And if they have questions or wonder about things, they can have those thoughts explained while reading the book. So let's close up with you sharing with listeners the details about the book, where it's available, and how it's been doing. Well, thanks, Phyllis. As you can tell, I love to talk about this book and about the artist. I, my passion for it has not diminished. I think uh, everyone around me is sort of waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find my book, L'Origine, The Secret Life of the World's Most Erotic Masterpiece. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's bookshop, or you can also you know, support your independent booksellers by asking them to order the book for you. Or you can go to the website, www littlefrenchgirlpress.com and there I have links to where you can buy the book and I would love I always love to hear my readers responses and reviews and engage with me tell me what you thought of the of the book of the painting it's a dialogue it's a painting that asks for dialogue and it promotes dialogue like I said I enjoyed it very much and it's just been a pleasure uh, speaking with you about it and I can't wait to um, see the feedback I get <laughs> regarding this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phyllis, for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 